at times is becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management this isn't normal in any shape or form for your first chance to hear brian o'driscoll on otb download the otb sports app and turn on your notifications And you're very welcome along to The Snap, your American football show here on Off The Ball. I'm Ronan Mullen with you this week and every week to recap the week that was in the NFL and beyond. We are brought to you as ever in association with the Erlingas College Football Classic Northwestern versus Nebraska at the Viva Stadium on Saturday, August 27th, 2022. Check out collegefootballireland.com for full details. Delighted to be joined this week and every week by Keen Fai. Keen, how are things? Oh, I'm about one step away from getting that horse deworming thing that Joe Rogan had. I don't think I've got COVID, but I feel like I do at this stage. But other than that, everything's good. The NFL season's in full, in full swing, and we're close to knowing what we're talking about, I think, with all the games that have been played. I think you've got a full-blown case of NFL fever. I think that's what that is, Keane. But, uh, I think I want to sound like Barry White at this stage. Your voice is just getting lower and lower. We don't, we don't quite have the reach of Joe Rogan's podcast, so we can't be uh, quite influencing people to that degree quite yet. But we'll get there. I'm fairly sure we'll get there. Um, we'll get to the pick six shortly, but we should start the show with the thing that all the uh, our counterparts on in the US are talking about. That's Brady versus Belichick, which is just a beautiful inbuilt narrative for for fans of sport and fans of the NFL in particular. Rarely do you see something like this play out. This would be akin to maybe Michael Jordan leaving the Bulls after that sixth championship and going to a competitor and then playing against you know. Phil Jackson straight away. It didn't quite transpire like that at the Wizards, for example. But are you are you into the hype of the whole thing? Are you enjoying the build-up? Yeah. Well, now that you mention it, it's hard to think of a parallel, isn't it? Like it, Messi and Guardiola is probably the closest that we've got, and that's literally just happened. So maybe there's a little bit of coincidence there. Maybe I'm kind of forcing that comparison. But in in Bill Belichick, you've got the greatest coach NFL has ever seen, and probably the greatest coach sport has ever seen. Like that's. Something you can argue, but it's a statement that you can make and it's something that has to be taken seriously. In Tom Brady, you've got, at worst, one of the five best players to ever play the sport. I know most people will default to saying he's the best, but you've got to consider guys like Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, Joe Montana, Jerry Rice. There are arguments against him being the very best. But this as a matchup is a really difficult one because in, 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 its, in the individual aspect of it, it's unbelievable. Belichick is defensive guru, defensive genius, has been for his whole career. The best thing he's done is gone up against the very best in the league and found ways to shut them down that no one's ever seen before. And this is the first time Brady gets a taste of that. But like Ronan, you're a boxing guy. You know, if a boxer, if a boxer goes in with an ailment or if a boxer goes into a fight beforehand with a bad camp or something like that, it's never really a fully fair fight. And that's kind of what it feels like with this Patriots team because defensively they don't have the talent they've had in, in seasons past. They don't have uh, the, the, the individual outstanding players they had in seasons past. And then offensively, Mac Jones and the offense are still getting used to each other. They'll get better as the season goes along, but they're not really in a position to win this game right now. The Buccaneers are just a far superior team. So it's a bit like if a, an individual head-to-head matchup where one guy has all the advantages, and I think Brady has all of the advantages. And if Gronk is fully healthy after last week when he went out and came back into the game, it's hard to see how the Patriots can cover that offense because there's too much talent there. And it's obviously a hugely played out thing and people have gotten great mileage out of which camp you're in, whether you're Team Brady or Team Belichick, when they were like in the same locker room. I don't know, like you, you obviously 
spoke glowingly about both there. They're both at the in the top echelon of their respective professions. But did you ever fall down on one side or the other in terms of I don't want to say who got the most credit for those Super Bowl wins because it's a, it's a mutual thing. But like, has there been enough evidence in the post Pats or the post Brady Pats to suggest that he was actually a key cog in it and that maybe he was actually the driving force behind the whole thing? It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Two guys come together, work together, have an unbelievable amount of success, and for their whole careers, the argument is them against each other and pitting <laughs> them against each other. Uh, Brady, to me, has always been one of the best quarterbacks in the league. He's always been an outstanding player. But you have to just go back through and look at the quality of the teams that the Patriots have always had. And it's not just that. It's the consistency and the turnover of players and the le- uh, maintaining a level of ability and a level of effectiveness, even with guys you've never heard of, and even while the roster continually changes. The year Brady was out injured, they still went to the playoffs at Matt Castle, who's never proved to be anything anywhere else. Like... Belichick, to me, is just on another level compared to anyone else. Uh, He's on another level compared to other coaches, but he's on another level compared to just the pillars of this sport. He is able to get the most out of anyone you give him. It's why you've seen so many players go to New England, have peak years, and then go elsewhere, get paid loads of money, and just be complete duds because they don't know how to uh, get the most out of them the way Belichick does. Uh, The the breakdown of it's always going to be unfair. So the, the dynamic of covering the NFL is the quarterback always gets way too much credit just because they're the big names and those are the people who want to, want to talk about and that's who people want to read about and hear about. But the coaches have so much more of an impact on team results and on team uh, outcomes than the quarterbacks do. Like, the quarterback is one of 2022 players on, on, on the field at a given time. But outside of that, like the, the training week, the decisions that are made in personnel, that all goes back to the head coach. So you're always, the, the head coach is always going... Like, if you take... a a historically good head coach and a historically good quarterback, the historically good head coach is always going to have the, the upper hand on that. A great example is Tony Romo. Like Tony Romo is getting plaudits now in his post, post-football career where he's a commentator, where I should say post-playing career rather than post-football career, but where he's a commentator and people are recognizing his genius. Tony Romo was a phenomenal quarterback. Like He was a historically good quarterback, but he played on Dallas Cowboys teams that were just disasters and never had a, a head coach. They never had a strong head coach in large part because they were working under Jerry Jones. So if you take, and that's just one example, there's so many examples over the years of, like Aaron Rodgers is one, of great, great quarterbacks who never had a good or even a great head coach and they never went anywhere. So if you if you had to take one and say, okay, I'm starting off with Bill Belichick, 45 years of age, I get him for the next 30 years, you're like, yeah, I'll take Belichick over taking Brady for 15 years or 20 years or whatever it is, starting at 21. I think the other thing that has to be noted there as well, sorry, I've already gone long on this, but the other thing that has to be noted is when Brady came in, he wasn't carrying offenses. He was very much a, a game-managing, kind of just-do-enough-to-get-by kind of a guy in complement of defense. And his career developed into being uh, someone who carries an offense and more expansive and throws loads of touchdowns and opens the offense up. So there was a lot of management involved in Brady's development and his success as well. That's an interesting point because the parallels were made between himself and Mac Jones in the sense that they don't look like the athlete of the week physique-wise and Mac Jones. Like one of the knocks on Brady in those early years was he didn't have maybe the the most electric offense. He was a quote-unquote game manager in that early part and, you know, that's where you could almost sway towards Belichick and that he managed to uh, manufacture Super Bowls out of that team in the early 2000s. But we, we'll probably talk about Brady plenty on this show in the coming weeks. But just on the Patriots, like what, what have you made of, of their season so far because last year was a bit of a write-off obviously this year like, there was obviously a lot of talk in the off-season about the money they spent and the two tight end set and I saw Warren Sharp had some stats on Twitter that you know they've actually been least productive when the tight ends have been 
on the field. So it's actually it's an it's an interesting one for Mac Jones to maybe handle in his rookie year where he can actually make decent decisions, but he's not the kind of quarterback that's going to throw people open. He's not going to when the when the plays go off register almost, and he has to get creative. He's probably not quite built for that yet. So it's an interesting one in that, from that point of view, and also Belichick his minute management and micromanagement of all facets of the game. There were some weird things in that Saints game last week where the the blown coverage for Alvin Kamara's basically game deciding touchdown and also like caught with ten men on the field in, in an instance. Like those are the kind of things that just don't happen under Belichick. I wonder, is there any sense that his all seeing, like all conquering control of that team is waning ever so slightly? I think one of the important aspects of Belichick's impact and Belichick teams is they've generally been slower starting and they get better as the year goes by. And like you mentioned there, the defensive mistakes, those tend to go away the longer he has those players together, which is why we've sometimes seen... So in the early years, they also had dominant defenses because they had incredible talent. But in like the middle years, like the, the year they played the Falcons in the Super Bowl with the huge comeback, that defense midway through the year was like legitimately bad. And they came together over the final eight games and over the playoffs and they became an average to an above average defense. And that's kind of been the galvanizing nature of Belichick. And I think that's important to note with the offense as well. In my Discord that I have on, uh, on my Patreon, I was asked this week, is the Patriots offense actually worse this year than it was last year? And you could turn around and say, yeah, they're worse this year than they were last year right now. But if we go back 12 months, we were getting the best version of Cam Newton we were going to get at that point. He came off that Seattle game where he played quite well and his arm looked decent, and then he got worse and worse and worse. Whereas I anticipate Mac Jones gets better and better and better because they're managing him. They're holding, They're not asking him to do everything straight away. They're going to slowly give him more and more in the offense. They're going to slowly ask him to do more and more, and that's going to open everything up and let him do it at a pace that suits him. And I think that's the reason to think, yeah, the offense is worse right now, but it will get better the further they go along. You mentioned the two tight ends. I don't think Hunter Henry has really found his role yet. I think John Smith's just effective in everything he does, so he's fine. But they really need to figure out how they're going to incorporate Henry and how they're going to make that work. And it's the same with the other receivers that are there. Like Kendrick Bourne had a great catch last week, but they haven't really gelled together. It hasn't all come together. James White has gone out for the season now, so there will be more fast targets to go around. There will be more reasons to get other players involved. And I think they'll do that. I think they'll get better just because when you have so many new pieces, when you have a rookie quarterback, there are so many things you have to do. And this is where the, the micromanaging or the minute detail, the attention to detail that the coaching staff has excelled with in, in past years will have an, a, a, a prolonged effect over the long term. It'll just be gradual, I think. It'll be slower moving. The question is, will they win enough in the intermediate times to make the playoffs? And that was the value of having Brady back in the day where they could be this team that was still figuring everything out and Brady was at such a level that they'll still go 6-2 and two or 7-1 and one over the first half of the season while things were still figuring themselves out because he was that good. They don't have that crutch anymore, but Mac Jones, I think, can be still a very, very good quarterback. And yeah, he's not athletic or anything like that, but he does have a level of intelligence and a level of understanding of leverage of how to throw receivers open. So I have no concerns about him. I think he'll make a lot of mistakes, but I think he'll, he'll become a really good player eventually too. Yeah, well, by the metric of the rookie quarterback so far, he's playing lights out. He's on course for a <laughs> Hall of Fame career as compared to his compatriots in, in this draft class. But yeah, it's, it's like Josh McDaniels is going to be one worth keeping an eye on because um, the argument's going to be made now after a, a week enough season last year, his spell with the Broncos. And if this is an uninspiring season, there's going to be that suggestion that Brady made him as well. And maybe he's not the the offensive guru that uh, he's been propelled to be in past years, but we'll see. I know Tom Curran, who covers the the Boston Beat, is projecting this game to be the red wedding, 
and that Brady's fresh off a loss to the Rams, that he's not going to suffer any fields when he goes back to New England at the weekend. And also he's on course to break Drew Brees' record. And if uh, the Patriots have to stop the game to commemorate their former quarterback, that's going to be something to behold. But this is actually, and it had to be, our competition game for this week. And the Bucks travelling to New England are favoured by seven points. So just, I actually think it's going to be a slightly more competitive game than people are pegging it. But I still think when it's all shaken down, I think the Bucks will probably come through by about 10 points. What are you thinking? I tend to agree with you. I was actually going to say exactly that. 10 points, yeah. So that's that's our competition. If anyone agrees, or more to the point, if anyone wants to disagree with myself and Kean, just uh, reply in the stream wherever you're watching and just tell us who you think is going to win against that spread. So as I said, the Bucks are favoured by 7 points. You're in with a chance to win some OTB branded goods we've got some uh, beanies and caps and, and whatnot to give away so as i said just comment in the stream or if you want to get us on social media just uh, give us your winner and use the hashtag otv snap and we'll be in touch during the week with the to announce the winner it's time for the pick six yeah number one keen is Aaron Rodgers, Roger, Roger. And I don't remember an MVP, a league MVP, coming into a season with this much of a shadow around him or maybe this level of uncertainty. We discussed it ourselves after that first game. It was a blowout loss to the Saints and we were looking at his body language on the sideline thinking, this guy doesn't want to be here. And we weren't the only ones making that point and I think his repost in recent weeks was, you know, I certainly want to be here. And he's, like, he, he certainly had the look of a guy when that uh, field goal to win the game went over at the weekend, that was uh, fairly thrilled to win one in Northern California, his old uh, stomping ground. So have you seen enough to suggest the, the Packers are, are back on track, especially with Aaron Rodgers at the helm? No, I, I think Rodgers himself is fine, uh, but I wasn't really ever concerned about that. I think he was disinterested in week one I, for definite. I think there was definitely a level of frustration or a message he was sending to someone or he just maybe didn't play well. But I think the quality of it was always there. Like you talk that game, that game probably told us more about the 49ers than it did the Packers. I think um, the I know there's been a lot of debate about them scoring too early and it being 30, was it 37, 38 seconds, whichever it was. But like that's kind of with no timeouts, that's normally safe. Like that should be safe. And the fact that Rodgers completed two passes over the middle to Devontae Adams, it's like 49ers. What are you doing? Like you, how how did you lose the game that way? At, at the very least, you force him to hit a tight window over the corner, over the sideline. Uh, did he do it? Was it to Jared Cook? Was Jared Cook a Packer back then when he did it against the Cowboys years and years ago? Where he had that phenomenal throw down the left sideline to win the game with about 35 seconds left, and he hit a couple of ones in the middle for that as well. It wasn't even difficult this time. Like the the throw to Adams over the middle, yeah, he had a linebacker running underneath it, but Adams was was running free. Like there, there was no uh, defender close to him. It wasn't like they put. In that situation, you put one on Adams and you play zone with everyone else if you want to, but you at least have someone on him because you know that's where the ball is going. Rodgers himself, like, he opened that game with a couple of those shot plays. I don't know what the exact route is, but if you run, uh, if you start your receiver in the white, on the white side of the field in the slot, so he's inside the numbers, and he breaks on the outside and he runs, he's running down the sideline, but he's drifting towards the sideline from the slot, so it's like an angled goal route. Um, Rodgers throws that ball better than anyone. And when you play man coverage against him and he hits that, it's so incredibly impressive to watch and it's so incredibly difficult to execute that you can almost get a measure of where he's at physically. 
because when he's doing that, it means he's physically 100% fine. You've no concerns about what he's going to be. So it's another year where he's not going to fade. But overall, like it's it's still Aaron Jones, Devontae Adams, and maybe one or two other guys will make a big play. And that's pretty much the Packers offense. The fact that the 49ers gave up what they gave up. And like, actually, what's your confidence level in Jimmy Garoppolo after that game? Because that, that was a big takeaway for me. No, I agree. And the Rogers point is interesting, obviously, with... His, the sense of longevity in his career, he's got all the athletic attributes and like it's always, I don't know, Colin Coward and the likes have maybe suggested he hasn't got comparable hunger to the likes of Brady, passion for the game, but I've always dismissed that notion as well. So I think whether it be, be it in Green Bay or beyond, I think he's going to be around the league for a few more years and you just kinda will, you're kind of willing him to, to get to another Super Bowl and at least contest one to, to double up his ring tally because his, his ability certainly merits it. But on the 49ers, as you mentioned, yeah, like uh, the, the Trey Lance thing was obviously fascinating. I think it's on good authority at this stage that the 49ers traded up to get Mac Jones and fell in love, quote unquote, with um, Trey Lance. And you've seen Trey Lance, they've tried to feature him as much as possible in these games, but it's getting to a point where they might have to just throw him in there. Like, I think that was always the plan, maybe to feature him towards the end of the year not even in a Patrick Mahomes fashion in that first year in the Chiefs where I think he got the last regular season game. I actually think they were kind of banking on getting Lance in for maybe the, the latter quarter of this season. But they might have to accelerate that a little bit because as much as we kind of trust the Shannon process and the 49ers are an impressive unit, you can't have these seasons just drifting away. And that kind of felt like a, a weird must win for both the Packers and the 49ers at the weekend. And the, the 49ers managed to eke it out. We obviously had Bomani Jones on off the ball last night. I'd encourage US sports fans to, to check that out anyway. But we obviously touched on Kaepernick. And I just wonder, you getting the feeling there might be a similar parallel between the Alex Smith game management type thing. And then when Kaepernick came in towards the end of that season, blazed that trail to a Super Bowl against the Ravens. Any chance of Trey Lance coming in and having that sort of impact? I think Kaepernick was year two, as far as I remember. He played a little bit during his rookie year. He kind of came in and ran the ball, and that's kind of what they're doing with Trey Lance right now, where he comes in for these gadget plays and these situational plays. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Um, I don't know, is it an insult or is it a compliment to Jimmy Garoppolo that we could compare him to Alex Smith, just because Garoppolo makes far more mistakes than Alex Smith ever did. So in that sense, it's an easier transition because your fear with Lance is he'll make too many mistakes. And if your veteran quarterback is already making mistakes, then you're not really losing anything by bringing in the more athletic, the more exciting guy, the more aggressive mindset. And maybe that suits them better. One thing I've noticed is that George Kittle has not had a huge impact this year, I don't think. Maybe his numbers are up there, but from what I've, what I've looked at and from what it's felt like watching the games, you're not seeing him as much. You're not seeing him have as much of an impact on defenses as much. And that's a big question mark for me. I'm wondering, is that an individual aspect with him? Or has he just got lost in the, the deck of cards of play calling or whatever, or however, it's, uh, however thing has fallen out? I, I think the, the fear as well is you have Nick Bosa coming back on the defensive side and you have that defensive front that's normally been good before. It's been already been suffocating. We haven't really seen them thrive either. So you're looking at the 49ers and you're kind of thinking in the past, this was a team that could overwhelm, overwhelm other opponents in different ways. Like when they made the Super Bowl and lost to the Chiefs, they were an exceptionally good team and they forced teams to play their very best game just to have a chance of beating them. And now it feels like teams don't have to play their best game to beat them, which is a big, big concern. Shanahan's always going to get a lot of the offense. He's always going to have them be effective, but they lost Raheem Mostert already, which isn't going to be a huge deal because he's a running back. 
but it's still a bit of a downgrade and it's still going to have a bit of an impact, especially when you have a bunch of guys in there who are kind of younger and, and, and less experienced. So having the more established players, the more established threats kind of gives you something to rely on when a guy like Garoppolo is having confidence issues, which is what he, to be honest, I don't know if I can say confidence issues because he's always been this guy who makes a lot of mistakes, but now he doesn't really look like he has the same level of com- uh, control over his throws like he did in the past. Even before he had like the game-winning drive, before Aaron Rodgers' game-winning drive, he made some key errors that, that like in that actual quarter just beforehand. So, I, I, it's it's very hard to be optimistic about them. And like we talked about last week, that division they're in is really strong, and everyone else is pretty much playing to expectations so far. So they might get uh, fall too far behind too early. Like if they're two, or if they're two and four or three and five, whatever, halfway through the year, are they going to be able to get into the playoffs? Probably not. No, you're, you're bang on, and that is a, it's a murderer's row of a division. It's going to be really tough. Like, there is obviously the prospect that several teams can come out of the West and, you know, make it in through the wild card and whatnot, but they're, they're a little bit on the back foot, and as I touched on, like, we can't just be giving them free passes year on year. They kind of have to... They've had, they had that amazing season where they probably should have won the Super Bowl and, and bottled it a little bit against the Chiefs, but short of that, it's been a, a fairly underwhelming fair from the 49ers, but... We'll keep abreast of that as the, as the weeks come on. We'll move on to number two in the pick six, and that's for whom the bell tolls. That is Big Ben Keane, and it looks like has has midnight struck on his career. Like We talked about Belichick there saying he basically weighed up the stats and the data from decades past and figured that Brady would be on the descent at this stage in his career. It hasn't quite worked out like that. <laughs> Rattlesburger, on the other hand, is following that exact trend and I don't know, to your mind, like he was obviously horrific last weekend, but has this been uh, like a precipitous descent or has this been gradually happening for years that he's kind of become a, a fairly mediocre quarterback? Well, I'm going to go ahead and not comment on Tom Brady and Ron Gronkowski somehow playing the way they are at their stage. Um, ben Roethlisberger, three or four years he's been washed up and on Sunday you saw probably the worst game he's ever played and the worst game any quarterback could play. Like, some of the decision-making there was incredible. I'm not sure if it was ruled a fumble or an interception, but the first turnover, he... The the Bengals blitz, and he sees the blitz come, and he just keeps holding the ball, and he makes the first uh, read, and he pumps for it, and then he doesn't throw it, and then he keeps holding it, and as the defender's on top of him, he starts the throwing motion, and it's like... How have you been in the league this long and trying to throw the ball at a point when the defender's already there? You know that ball's getting knocked out and it's going straight to a Bengals defender. And now they've got the ball in your territory and that's how they scored their first touchdown. Uh, the second interception is one where it's like, if Mac Jones made that play, he'd be like, fair enough, he's a rookie. That's, that happens. But they just dropped the defender off the defensive line. He threw the ball straight to the defender. He looked at the defender and threw it straight at him. And then he's taking sacks where he's trying to extend plays like he is 27 or 28 years old still and he's absolutely not, obviously. He missed wide open easy throws that he should have been making that routine because his arm strength is gone, so passes are all fading and flying over his head. And then to tap it all off, at the very end of the game, it's 4 and 10, and he throws the ball to his running back in the flat with four guys in front of him. Like, they blame Juju Smith-Schuster for all the failings in the offense last year because he did videos on TikTok, and somehow they, and Deontay Johnson got blamed for too many drops, even though Johnson a lot of the time was trying to adjust to really poorly thrown passes. And they didn't seem to care that Roethlisberger was throwing two and three yard passes all the time and struggling to throw those two and three yard passes. Like the offense has not been good there. And they've drafted as if they're drafting for a guy who's still playing at the top level of his game. They've brought in running backs, they've brought in wide receivers, and they haven't concentrated on moving on from him and building out the team so that they can actually make a transition. Like if you want to compare it to the Patriots, like we talked about earlier, at least the Patriots had a plan. 
The Steelers have not had a plan. Their plan has been, let's give Roethlisberger an extension. Let's give him another extension. Now we're paying him $40 million a year to get terrible quarterback play. And I don't know how they've been comfortable doing this, but that's kind of what happens. I always compare it back to the NBA with Kobe Bryant and the Lakers when he was very obviously done and coming off major injuries at the very end of his career, and they still gave him $45 million a season because he's Kobe, even though it destroyed the rest of the team and shut them down for a couple of years until LeBron came. So it, it, these decisions, like a great young franchise quarterback can give you a platform to build on. An old franchise quarterback can absolutely destroy your team because it, it's, it's not a business relationship. It's a, it's a love relationship, essentially. These teams, they fall for that quarterback. They mythologize them. They turn them into these larger-than-life leaders and characters. And then they can't see when they've broken down and when they're not playing to the level they need to play at. Yeah, it's an intriguing point, actually, on the, obviously, the athleticism wanes. But the fact that his decision-making was so poor last weekend is a little bit baffling, given his history in the league. I appreciate when you're under that sort of pressure and almost the mental pressure that you're imposing on yourself, knowing that you're so below par that he just looked, I don't know, it might be the point of no return, Keane, but like the, the options don't, aren't too appetising either. You look at Dwayne Haskins or we've seen what Rudolph can do and it's not very much. So like, in a word, would you persevere with Rattlesburger or what do the Steelers do here? Well, the problem is, asking me that question, I would have said three years ago he needs to be gone. So I would have gotten rid of him three years ago, and in those three years, it's not like they've gone on to win a Super Bowl or gone on to an AFC Championship game. They've done nothing in those three years. So three years ago, you, you should have bring in a succession plan. And the weird thing about it is they've drafted guys like Josh Dobbs. They've dra- drafted uh, Mason Rudolph. They've spent mid-round picks on quarterbacks, which is always stupid because a mid-round pick on a quarterback is essentially throwing it away. He's never going to get enough time to develop and actually play. And he then costs you an opportunity to invest in the team around uh, the, the guy who you're actually going to play. So... And what was the other fellow? Duck Hodges was his name, Devlin Hodges. He, was, he played for a while when Rossburger was hurt. There just hasn't been anything there to move on to. So in mid-season, yeah, like if I was kind of running this and let's say it was like a Madden team and we go back three years, well, of course, I would have just signed Colin Kaepernick because that would have been an intelligent football thing to do. Obviously, we know why that didn't happen. Outside of that, you like if they had built that team up with that defense with those wide receivers, maybe they couldn't because it was an AFC rival, but they would have been in the bricks for Brady. They would have had that opportunity to go and, and talk to Tom Brady and go, we've got TJ Watt at the time, we've got Bud Dupree, we've got Cameron Hayward, we've got Devin Bush, we've got all these guys on the defensive side. Don't, don't you want to have this insanely talented defense that's going to beat up every quarterback you play? Oh, and on the outside, we've got Chase Claypool, who's a monster of size. We've got uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, who's one of the best slot receivers in the league and one of the best route runners in the league. He's perfect for you. And we've got James Conner at the time. Like You could have gone to a guy like Tom Brady and said, this is our team, look how good we are, we're going to win a bunch of Super Bowls. But instead, the Buccaneers could do that because they moved on from Jameis Winston. And obviously, moving on from Winston is easier than moving on from Roethlisberger, but it's still a decision that should have been made. Yeah, now they don't have options, but there's never an option. When you're moving on from your quarterback, it's always, okay, who's coming out of the draft next year? Who, who can we get there? Is there a veteran free agent? Even, hey, a guy like Ryan Tannehill a couple of years ago. Like, the t- Titans picked up Tannehill for nothing, essentially. He took a pay cut to go there because the Dolphins didn't know how to use him, didn't know how to manage him. And then look at, look at the prosperous day, um, season, few seasons they've had because they went out and act, uh, were active in getting another quarterback who could at least contend for the job. Yeah, now they're in the Gardner Minshew sweepstakes. That's possibly the, the only upgrade they can get, unless they, I don't know, don't want to knock on Deshaun Watson's door, but maybe they, that would be ill-advised. Let's move on to number three in the pick six. That is Josh Almighty, and we're, we were talking there about a quarterback whose ascent is maybe decelerating or maybe falling off a cliff is probably more to the point. But Josh Allen, I saw you describe on Twitter, Keen, this was 
the best performance of his career by some distance. So maybe tell us a little bit about why. Yeah, so this offense has already always put up big numbers against teams and they've blown teams out. And Allen has been able to make a lot of mistakes within those games and still put up big numbers because of the quality of the offense. Oftentimes it's an unnecessary fumble where he's holding the ball away from his body or he throws the ball to the defender a couple of times or he just too often misses wide open throws. But it's never hurt them because of how effective the offense has been. So what's happened is when they've played against really good defenses, you've seen him struggle a lot more. You've seen those games against the Steelers in particular and in the playoff games where the other team is able to get pressure on him. And that means he, he's uh, less effective and he's less consistent. He's a little bit more erratic. Going against the Washington defense is a really, really good defense. And he didn't have those plays. He didn't have those mistakes. He was able to be effective against pressure. Like the first big play he had in the game, he stepped up in the pocket and hit Stefan Diggs between two defenders after the pressure came off the edge against, from Chase Young. The Washington defensive front didn't overwhelm the Bills offensive line, but they were able to get one point of pressure through uh, repeatedly. And that's when it becomes about the quarterback, because if the quarterback can adjust to that, he'll be able to make plays. If he can't adjust to that, it'll shut the whole offense down. And Allen adjusted to it. He played really well, and he made a lot of good throws and made a lot of good smart decisions. And this is the kind of guy, like, this is where the frustration comes, because people have talked about Josh Allen like he plays like this every week, and like he's this superstar every week just because of the numbers. But when you actually watch him individual of everything that's going on around him, he's never played like this. If he plays like this moving forward every single week, I'm not, I know I'm not even talking about all the numbers. I'm talking about the efficiency on play-by-play play play and decision-making and accuracy and reaction to pressure, reaction to situation. If he plays like that, yeah, the Bills are a legitimate contender and they could actually go, and, and especially now with the Chiefs looking very susceptible, they could actually go and win the AFC, but they'll need this kind of player to, to play on throughout. They can't have him go back to being the sloppy guy he's been before. And that's something I've said about Kyler Murray last week as well, where... He's, a little bit, he's got a little bit of that in him where he's got these phenomenal big plays, he's got enough efficiency in his overall game when he's got a great supporting cast to put up an offense that will score loads of points. But then you need that efficiency when you come up against better teams. So the two of them are kind of interesting now because the Bills are emerging in the AFC and the Cardinals are emerging in the NFC and they're both young, exciting, talented players with incredible uh, talent around them on offense. Yeah, I recall like Kyler Murray seemed to be a bit of a sure thing. There was obviously a little bit of conjecture around would he choose baseball over football, that kind of thing. Obviously, the Cardinals had the number one pick that year and they had just used a high draft pick the previous year. So that was the only uncertainty around him. Josh Allen, on the other hand, that was a stacked draft class. And, you know, there was a little bit of doubt. I know everyone has to be scrutinised to the nth degree, but there was a little bit of talk about his, his lack of accuracy. But I have to say, like in that first season, he was grand. But last late season especially, he was absolutely brilliant in terms of the, the levels he upgraded by. And as you said, like him and Kyler have seriously high ceilings. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And the AFC is looking fairly competitive. We'll, we'll talk about the Chiefs in just a moment. But we should talk on number four in the pick six. And listen, if this is the pick six, we're going to talk about the Ravens. But we don't have to dwell on it this week, Keen. We just have to mention Justin Tucker just in time because... Uh, the Ravens somehow conspired to almost blow that game from a, a lead that they, they really shouldn't have and the Lions are a little bit turgid and somehow, to, to their credit, manoeuvred themselves into a winning position short of a maybe contentious, was it a delay of game? I don't know. Like uh, You can tell me if it was or not. But come what may, 66-yard field goal from Justin Tucker was absolutely outrageous. Did you have full confidence in him to nail it? Well, hey, he's the best player in football. He's the best at what he does. Nobody is as good at what they do as he is as what he does. And I know there's a limited value of being a kicker, but the consistency and the, uh, the levels that he reaches as a kicker is just, it, it's inarguable. He's a Hall of Famer, best kicker you'll ever see as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that he now holds the record for the longest kick and, and in the way he did it is just perfect. It's storybook for him. Uh, you mentioned that, also, or that 
delayed game that the time so the way that works the play clock goes down to zero the officials look down and or the officials look up at the clock they see it go to zero then they look down to see if the ball is snapped that means you get an extra second but that play it felt like two seconds it did not feel like that extra beat that you always get so there is some argument there but hey you're the lions if you get them to fourth and 19 or whatever it was you should have won that game uh the bigger story for me and the story moving forward is marquise brown dropping the ball it's it's been the story of his career I like Marquise Brown is the best receiver that the Ravens have and he was a high pick and he's an exciting type of player so he generally gets a pass he hasn't been a good receiver that's the problem like he's got such a small catch radius that you need him to catch the ball consistently when he gets those all wide open opportunities and to me it's like I'm not a Ravens fan you're a Ravens fan it must be incredibly frustrating frustrating watching him yeah and he, he gets himself open a good bit so he obviously red tree is what is what people talk about it as in the the various routes he can run. He seems to get involved in, in lots of different types of plays for the Ravens, but as you said, small catch radius is not, you can't just throw up contestables for him in the same way you can with the likes of, I don't know, Julio Jones or whoever. So you're right, like when, when Jackson, to his credit, is being precise with these throws, and he threw, I said on Twitter, like he threw maybe five touchdown passes in the first half against the Lions and one of them was caught, that's not his problem. Similarly, Jackson like it's actually a nice uh, upturn in his career that he led uh, game-winning drives against the Chiefs last week from a losing position, and this one, like you said, four and nineteen, like he had to find the pass to to make that possible, and that's probably something he didn't have in his repertoire even eighteen months ago. So, as a Ravens fan, it, it does bode well that he's he's coming up in these clutch situations. He's thrown a few interceptions, obviously, but like when he's going to let the ball out of his hands a bit more that's going to happen you have to be a little bit aggressive in your in your play calling if you want to be contesting in February so that's kind of I'll give him almost a pass on that but it'll be interesting Sammy Watkins has brought something to the table he's similar sort of catch problems but um, a bit more experienced at least and they have a few more options maybe in the passing game that they had than they had in previous seasons Mark Andrews still a very reliable target for Jackson just on that Keen, is that something players can improve on catching the ball. It seems like such a fundamental of the game, but as uh, Marquise Brown comes into his mid-twenties almost, is that something he can get better at, or is it just sort of uh, an integral flaw in the game that's never going to be addressed? Yeah, lots of receivers have. Some, some of them never do. Some of them will always be dropper, drop the passes. Um, Nate Washington is a great example. Nate Washington came through the Steelers, and he was one of the receivers coached by Bruce Arians. I think he was undrafted. He played special teams a lot. And he was a deep threat, a, a shot play guy, and he used to drop everything. Like he, every every second throw, you could you could he'd be wide open. He'd always be wide open, but he wouldn't catch it. He wouldn't catch it. You'd be hoping against hope that he'd catch the ball, and maybe he'd catch one out of every two when he's wide open. And he developed over a couple of years in Pittsburgh that he got a bit of a larger role in the offense, started to run a little bit more routes, and started to be more of an effective player. And then he was signed away to the Tennessee Titans. And in Tennessee, he went from being a deep shot play, vertical threat, to a possession receiver. So you mentioned a route tree. He's running routes all over the place. He's catching all sorts of passes. He used to run a beautiful comeback route to catch the ball running out over the sideline. And he, at his peak, he went through a full year where he had something like 110 targets and, I don't know, caught 90 passes or whatever it was and didn't drop a single ball. And like that's the kind of development you can have as a receiver, but you just you need that level of comp- concentration. Like Drops fall into two different categories. Actually, it's more than two, but... Uh, wide open drops fall into two different categories it's concentration just watching the ball into your hands and sometimes you look away too early and you miss it with your hands whatever that's fine and technique where the actual way you're cradling your hands to the ball in certain situations and the way you're 
uh, grabbing at it. Like there's a specific way the receiver is supposed to do that, and it improves it. Like a lot of receivers will catch the ball into their chest or try and catch the ball into their shoulder rather than catch it with their hands away from their body. Whereas you look at a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, he always catches the ball away from his body because he's got huge hands and he knows his, his hands are good enough, so he trusts them. Whereas a guy like Terrence Williams, who played for the Cowboys for years, couldn't catch the ball away from his body at all. So everything had to go into his body, which limited what he could do and limited how consistency was. Consistency was. So there's a there's a science behind catching the ball that in typical American fashion gets broken down into every minute detail. Whereas here we all just play gag growing up, so we all naturally just know to catch a ball. It has to be kind of taught into a lot of these guys. So it depends on the level of coaching you've had in college before you come into the league and then the coaching you get over the early stages of your career. If you're talking Marquise Brown specifically, I wouldn't be optimistic just because he's a couple of years in now. By now, he should be showing more progress. Uh, the, the upside here is Rashad Bateman and Miles Boykin are coming back this week, I believe. Boykin hasn't really developed the way they wanted him to. And Bateman, to me, was someone who dropped too many opportunities or dropped too many passes and missed too many opportunities in college. So he's an unknown. We'll see what we get from him. They're high on him. I wasn't, but hopefully he proves me wrong. Yeah, big body receivers. And Devin Duvernay is probably one of those in the moderate category where you kind of see him on special teams a bit, but not so much in the passing game that they would have hoped. So that kind of might have been, I don't want to call it a bust, but he probably hasn't impacted the offense as much as the Ravens would have hoped. But... We move on to number five in the pick six and something we, it was kind of my mantra throughout the first couple of weeks, Keen, that the Chiefs, we'll get to the Chiefs later in the season, they're going to be fine, but we have to kind of talk about it now. Number five, Mahomes alone. Are the Chiefs fine? Are they all right? I know they're, they're bottom of the division, which seems an incredible concept, but it's obviously an uber competitive division. Would you, are there reasons to be concerned or what, what is your read on them so far? Big reasons to be concerned, and it's all the skill position players on offense. Um, drops, uh, fumbles, kind of Edward Solaire, a running back, has two fumbles now in successive weeks, and both of them were avoidable, and both of them were very costly. Uh, Tyree Kill had a fumble this week over the middle, and then you had some key drops on, uh, was it McHardman or Robinson, on third downs, where you these plays need to be made. Like We we always make it about the quarterback, and I could come in here and say, oh, Patrick Mahomes isn't playing well, he's not playing well enough, but he's playing perfectly fine. Like The only thing that's been stopping the Chiefs is... The uh, skill positions, like Bosa had a couple of plays on, on, on Sunday and the Chargers defense is really, really good in terms of the secondary. So there's a lot of quality there. So I don't want to completely dismiss them, but it really does come down to that effectiveness on the offense. And Justin Herbert, again, my God, that he's just keeps rising to another level. Third downs for him don't feel like a challenge at all. When they need a play, he finds a way to make it and makes it happen. And he does so without without it looking like his heart ever. Like when you watch Kyler Murray, he's running around and trying to figure everything out and everything's moving 100 miles an hour. You watch Justin Herbert and it's like everything's going at his pace at all times, even when there's defenders on top of him, even when he's being flushed out of the pocket. So I don't know, are there major concerns about the Chiefs? Because I think the players they have will get better and more consistent in what they're doing. But they're clearly not what we expected them to do. And now if Josh Gordon comes in and he can be the number two, I don't know how, how I should treat Josh Gordon because he's barely played and he's been out of the league and there's always challenges with him. But like sheer physical talent, he will be their second best wide receiver and third best receiving option, I think, outside of Hill and Kelsey. So that, it's going to be interesting. They have, they have a lot to figure out. And then suddenly a team that we thought we could just wait until the playoffs started, we actually have to pay a bit of attention to now. No, that's it. And the Gordon one is, I was going to say it's fascinating, but it's not, it's more, I don't know, it's intriguing. Like, it, it's, you get the sense of one's bitten twice shy with this. Like, he's obviously been to some good programs with the Patriots and uh, the Seahawks as well. And you kind of ho were hoping it would click for him before now. And the Chiefs are obviously taking a punt on him, hoping he'll be that X-Factor that they need. 
and Le'Veon Bell was a similar conversation last year obviously different circumstances he, he came in around this time and didn't have the desired effect so as you said if, if Josh Gordon plays to his potential obviously he's going to be a massive game changer for them but uh, the jury's still very much out on that I think and just maybe quickly on the other acquisition midweek it, it ties back to the game we were talking about earlier um, the Bucks have brought in Richard Chairman to address those secondary woes they've had in the early part of the season is there enough to suggest that Richard Chairman can still he's not going to be the Richard Chairman of your but do you think he can have a decisive impact for the Bucks? I think he's a valuable part because Jamel Dean got injured and they have already a couple of other guys injured there in the secondary, so they need cornerbacks. And because the defensive front there is so good, they don't need to blitz. So Sherman will be able to sit in zone and make smart decisions and make uh, reads like that. Like, he would be on a team before now if it wasn't for the off-field issues that he had. Kind of an interesting training uh, situation there when you've got Richard Sherman covering Antonio Brown in practice all the time. Like, that's probably going to be fiery and a little bit crazy. But, hey, that's Bruce Arians will probably like that. That's what Bruce, the Bruce Arians type of team is. Let's be fiery. Let's go after things. Let's get, let's get competitive and go. So he's a perfect fit as a Buccaneer. Is he good enough to still play? I would guess yes, but you never really know when guys are that age and they haven't played in a year. I think as long as they don't ask him to do too much or they don't ask him to be like following receivers or playing too much man coverage, he'll be good and he'll be effective. Once everyone's healthy, I'm not sure how much he'll actually play. And our last item of the day, number six in the pick six, is Thrill of the Chase. And we should, set, should end on a high. Obviously, we've bemoaned the, the quarterback play from the rookie so far. And like you mentioned, Justin Herbert, he's obviously the exception to the rule. He's been phenomenal since he made his debut as a rookie and hasn't looked back. Hasn't been the case for his fellow QBs. Jamar Chase, we were a little bit worried about him. He was saying in the offseason... I can't catch these NFL balls, they're too slippery. And now he seems to have gotten to grips with the NFL just fine now, Keane. He looks an impressive prospect. And Joe Burrow still has a few mistakes in him. He can probably iron out those kinks in the long term. But the Bengals all of a sudden look like a, a more of an impressive proposition. So he's got four touchdowns in three games now, I think. He had two at the weekend. I think we came on here in week one and we talked about him because he'd come off that difficult preseason. But and we can't, I probably expected at the time, oh, we'll be we'll, I'll probably talk about him or revisit him again, but he's just been so good. You can't ignore him. Like the quality of play and the combination of explosiveness down the field and consistency on his routes on shorter on on shorter run and runs and in possession possession routes and situational football. He's everything you want in a wide receiver, and he's going to be one of the best receivers in the league at some point if he's not already. It's just a matter of proving himself over the long term, and it reminds me of. A fellow LSU receiver and his debut yeah, as a rookie, very different types of player, but it reminds me of Odell Beckham in a, a sense of impact because when he came in, Odell completely changed that Giants offense from day one. Like it suddenly Eli Manning had someone outside that the defense was terrified of and it changed everything for everyone else. And that's what Jamar Chase has felt like. It's alleviated a level of pressure on Burrow, but it's also made defenses more wary of how much they can try and pressure Burrow because they know on the outside now, there's a guy who's going to beat anyone you have. Like he's going to win no matter who we put on him. And he's a rookie wide receiver. Now, now that we mentioned Beckham as well, great to see him back. He came back from his ACL this week, looked perfectly fine, had a couple of impressive catches over the middle, looks physically healthy, looks uh, athletically effective. And with Jarvis Landry, that's a big, uh, big detail for the Browns. AFC North, outside of the Steelers, is a lot of fun. It could be a really great division again. And if we actually have, I guess it's kind of concentrated now. Like We've got the AFC West, the NFC West, the AFC North. 
Am I forgetting any other division that's like really interesting and really good? Like, there's those three. It feels like the league is kind of exists in there. I guess the NFC North as well because the Buccaneers are there. But it kind of exists in there, and then everyone else is just a kind of part of their own secondary show. No, I'd go along with that. And the, the wide receiver point is interesting. Obviously, Beckham back. I think it's always been a stacked sector of the field. I'm not suggesting that this is a special generation of wide receivers, but it does seem like there is some great talent around at the moment. Cooper Cup. I don't know, would you put him, is he the best receiver in the league, Keen, or am I jumping the gun there a little bit? Have, who would you reflectively say at the moment is the top guy in the league at wide receiver? Um, Justin Jefferson has really stood out. Adam Thielen really stands out. Cooper Cup has been really good. I just I think Cooper Cup benefits a lot from Sean McVay like, and Robert Woods. Like, look at his touchdown at the weekend. It's a, it's a pick play where Robert Woods gets him wide open. Like, Cup has to do nothing for that. And he has a lot of plays like that, even though he also makes big plays after the catch. So like, there's a level of talent there. But like, even it's difficult because let's jump to the Buccaneers. Chris Godwin there, incredible receiver. But he's never going to get the level of service that other receivers will get because he's got Gronkowski and he's got Mike Evans and he's got OJ Howard and he's got all these other guys who need to be fed the ball. And it feels like there's so many receivers and so much talent on every single team now that everyone's sharing the ball a little bit more. So you're not getting the Calvin Johnsons. You're not getting the superstars who get 120 catches a year, 130 catches a year and put up monster numbers. But yeah, I tend to agree with you. I'm not sure if I've got one in particular who's the very best in the league, but there's incredible talent there. Like you could, you could probably list your top twenty wide receivers in the league and not even mention Debo Samuel. And like Debo Samuel is phenomenal. <laughs> it's just we're at that point where it's oversaturation of quality, and it might become like running back where teams start to devalue it a little bit because we can find them anywhere, kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, it's stacked, and certainly you come up against any team, and they've got danger men all over the field. So at least they're not all concentrated on certain teams. I know some teams, as you mentioned, have star-studded. Uh, wide receiving cores, but at least most teams seem to it seems to be a bit more uh, spread out. So that's that's a good thing. Oh, but DeAndre Hopkins is the best receiver in the league. What the hell am I talking about? I thought that's what you were going to say, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. But yeah, I know you're uh, you're grow for the the Cardinals. That uh, the fact that he was allowed to leave Texas is just a uh, it's a crazy one and something that will probably never make sense. There's probably a thirty for thirty in the Bill O'Brien era Texans. If not, what's happening now? Because that's. Uh, Fairly crazy as well, but that's all we've got time for this week, Keen. Thanks a million, and thanks a million to JP and Emma for helping putting the show together. This has been The Snap. We are brought to you, as ever, in association with the Erlingas College Football Classic, Northwestern versus Nebraska at the Aviva Stadium on Saturday, August 27th, 2022. Check out collegefootballireland.com for full details.